Big issues, big names. An interview every month. It's not that simple. A podcast from Fundação Francisco Manuel dos Santos. Today we're going to focus on human capital. We'll talk about how valuable we as humans are in the labor market, how we have evolved and really what are the keys that will contribute to our success in the future. We're going to do this. We're going to discuss this topic with Nobel Prize winning American economist James Heckman. James, who also holds a variety of roles, senior roles at the University of Chicago in the economics department, is going to share his insight and expertise on this topic. James is also the director of the Center for the Economics of Human Development and director of Human Capital and Economic Opportunity at the Global Working Group. So, James, thank you so much for joining us on this program. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. I think to kick off our discussion, it'd be really valuable if you could share your definition of human capital and taking into account your experience, why it's such a fascinating topic to, to, to discuss. Well, human capital really is a term that's used very broadly, uh, and it's not a single Uh, item. It's really, you can think of it as human skills. And the emphasis is human, of course, and the other component of it is skill, which means that these are aspects of our, our, our capacities to perform that can be shaped by our actions, whether it's schools, whether it's training our children, whether it's our own activities engaging the world. There are a lot of ways to shape human capital, and there are a lot of dimensions to human capital. So people have thought about you know, skills in the workplace, like you're saying, but also the capacity to deal with others, mm -hmm. the capacity to uh, in control one's life, the capacity to be able to engage in a series of constructive activities. So in that sense, human capital is a capacity, or it's a, it's a set of capacities which allow us to function well in the world. We're going to hopefully get into a few of those dimensions of human capital during our, our conversation. Uh, uh -huh. To get things going uh, and looking at, at this topic from a historical standpoint, uh, among your many contributions to the study of labor and, and human capital is the, the, the demonstration that the uh, promotion of civil rights in 1964 had a positive impact on economic progress. Uh, would you like to uh, expand on that? Well, when I was working on this paper, it's been a while now, but uh, yes. <laughs> this, this line of work, there was a body of thinking inside economics that uh, denied the capacity of legislation and regulation to promote the well-being of different social and economic groups. And so the idea was regulation per se was harmful or would never really uh, allow for human uh, flourishing. So the idea that I actually was engaged with was, the, was showing that, in fact, in the 1960s, when African-American progress was very substantial in the United States, and there's no denying that it was substantial, that a lot of factors were going on. Blacks had been going into schooling at a much higher rate starting in the 1930s and 40s. So that was a phenomenon that had been pre-existing before the 1960s. There was also a, a, a war, the war on, in Vietnam, which tightened the American economy and made labor markets very much, much tighter. And a typical phenomenon in that period is that minority groups and groups that have been excluded are very much more likely to be brought into the labor force. 
So there was this question of whether it was the war in Vietnam that promoted black progress. But I also, at this time, Lyndon Johnson and the whole Senate, US Senate, passed what was called a series of civil rights laws. This governed not only the workplace, but it governed also the way that uh, restaurants and hotels and a number of other organizations treated African-Americans. And so my goal was to try to look among these competing explanations. Some were secular factors that were going in a very smooth way. But what I also found was that there was a very sudden jump after the 64 Civil Rights Act. And we got data from at one time in the United States, segregation codes were such that mm -hmm. literally firms had to report what percentage of their workforce was black, what percentage was white. And so we could use those records to see a very dramatic jump that occurred around the time of the passage and enactment of the civil rights law. And so what we found was that civil rights played a very important role in advancing African-Americans and the law, the law of civil rights. It wasn't just the general social protest, but it was also literally the law itself. And the law was targeted towards the Southern United States. And that's where most of the progress was made. Mm. The reason why also it was important to talk about this period in the United States is that obviously throughout the past decades, there's been an increase in, in labor rights, civil rights in, in, in the U.S. Um, the same can be said about many Western countries in, in Western Europe. Um, however, there are certain superpowers right now, such as China, India, and some countries in the Middle East that actually have resisted to give uh, more civil and labor rights and are being still quite successful from an industrial perspective. So how have you seen the emergence of the success of some of these states uh, without the, the, the kind of, of civil and labor rights that we've seen in the Western world? Well, you got to be really careful about China in that regard, because in the 1949 revolution, uh, you saw a very rapid change in the status of women. And so what you saw was previously Chinese culture, traditional culture excluded women from the workplace. Mm. Really women weren't going to education. Uh, women were not doing a lot of things in the traditional society. And when 1949 came along, there was full equality mandated by the state. This happened earlier in Russia in the 1920s. It happened in Cuba in the 1960s. And it's happened in many, and in Vietnam later in the 1970s. So like it or not, one of the benefits of communist revolutions has been that it's provided education and provided much greater participation in society than in traditional roles. So I do want to sort of question your statement that somehow China is not practicing civil rights in this broad sense. India is a different issue completely, I agree. India has these traditional... Uh, caste system, and it's really not a single country. It's a collection of provinces with different cultural traditions. And I don't think there's been a uniform policy applied. And I think the current leader of India, with his emphasis on Hindu culture and Hindu uh, dominance, has created somewhat of a jarring situation where the Muslims and other minorities have been somewhat put at a disadvantage. So I'll be, I'd like to qualify that remark, <laughs> okay? 
Uh, I, I understand that. I, 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 uh, I meant that from a democratic standpoint in the labor market, obviously there were different models uh, uh, that are practiced in, in the U.S. than there are in, in, in China and the way the workforce is. Uh, but uh, this, this is something this is something that uh, I'm from the University of Chicago. And of course, Milton Friedman is most often associated correctly with Chicago, mm -hmm. at least in the period 1950 to our, the period of the late 70s, early 80s. And his books were very influential. And one of the principles that, that Friedman tried to emphasize and many of his followers have emphasized is that the structure of uh, liberty in the democratic sense, democracy, is really important for economic success and vice versa, that a, that a, that a free market system will promote democracy. And yet, in his last years, when he was celebrating his 90th birthday or so, we had a celebration in his honor here at the University of Chicago. And I asked him this very question at the one of these, you know, a session not dissimilar to what we're doing right now. Mm -hmm. And I, I said, well, do you still believe that democracy and Democrat and economic growth really are, are, are really paired in the way that you thought so 20, 30 years ago? And he said, no, it's not true. Partly because China was already developing. And secondly, it was because Hong Kong. So there were a lot of examples, Singapore too, which is hardly at that, at that time a very democratic place nonetheless showed a lot of prosperity. So I think generally speaking, these are separate matters. I think okay. a democratic society does allow correction of the excesses that a totalitarian society, for example, I'm 100% sure that if China were a full democracy, the shutdowns in the economy would never have been tolerated. And you know, this goes back many, many years. Uh, the famous Indian famine of the 1940s is an example where uh, India at the time was a British colony, hardly a democracy, and there was a famine that was allowed. And that probably was a failure of state in the sense the state functioning of uh, was just not permitted. So democracies open up and they allow dissent and they allow change in a way, but I don't think it's one-to-one. -one. I don't think it's necessary to have a democracy, to have a successful technological uh, invention and there are plenty of examples in world history. You look at Japan, Meiji Japan, in the late nineteen uh, late nineteenth century, uh, when basically it opened itself to technology. It was still a feudal state, more or less centralized now, but uh, and so no democracy, but it created a very powerful military and industrial complex. So, so I think the two are separated. We need to separate those. Okay, I appreciate your uh, your insights on that. I wanted to talk about uh, uh, another topic that you've you've studied extensively, which is the the, the impact of inequality on skill on skill acquisition, yes. um, and and how how doomed the poor are to be stuck in in a in a circle of poverty because of the opportunities or lack thereof of acquiring skills. Um, how do you assess? the equality or inequality in the labor market at the moment and the opportunities to progress in, 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 in careers as opposed to uh, uh, what we've seen in, in maybe a more distant past? Well, uh, if you were to talk about inequality in the United States, 
which is probably where I should keep my uh, opinions. Sure. Since I've researched the data, but I'm I've also been working in Denmark and other right. uh, Nordic countries, so it's not complete, not a completely black box for me. But the one thing that's really been discussed, and it's a new finding, it's a new dis- dimension to the discussion of inequality, is that in American politics, certain parties, in particular the Democratic Party, and many other populist groups have emphasized the growth of inequality and the fact that this is, that, the, that the ratio of the income of the top to the bottom has grown and that we are somehow mm-hmm. a much less equal society. The reason why that's been disputed, and it is disputed, it's not that there isn't a growth in inequality. Nobody denies that. But the way that it's been characterized, people do. For example, the statistics that are put out by these, there are two people. Piketty, of course, a European, has looked a lot at the United States, and Emmanuel Zayez, who's at Berkeley, and others, a guy named Zuckman, Gabriel Zuckman. These people have done a lot of work trying to emphasize the growth and inequality. And in some real sense, they've shaped the discussion. However, what they've done is they've been using data that is very incomplete. I, I, let me explain why it's incomplete. They're mm-hmm. looking at family income. So there are many different ways to measure inequality. You could talk about wage inequality between two qualified individuals, equally qualified, or you can talk about income inequality for families. And most of the discussion has been conducted for families. So this would be children uh, and parents together. And of course, family structure itself has changed a lot over the last uh, 30, 40 years all around the world. But put family as the main mention. That's where the focus OECD and the US and Piketty and Zayez. What's happened is true that in the labor market, unskilled people have not done that well. So the earnings of unskilled people have not been that high. And in fact, we think now with the international, the globalization Mm -hmm. of the labor market, bringing China on board, Vietnam, and many of the other countries that are at, used to be at the fringe, now are playing at the center of the economy, has really lowered the wage growth and even the real wage of some very unskilled workers, no question about it. However, in the United States anyway, the response has been to increase transfers. So what used to be a society that was very stingy in transferring has now become a society that is actually very generous. I'll give you a sense of how generous it is. If you look at the bottom 20 percentile of American income inequality, of family income inequality, the average earnings, earnings of the people of families there would be $4,500 a year, a very low income. Wow. But if you ask how much income do they receive, not just from earnings, but from transfer programs, from a number of uh, various kinds of social efforts to redistribute income, that it turns out that their income is actually $49,000 a year. So there's more than an 11-fold increase, but it's coming through transfers. Looking at, 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 at the, the way in which uh, American society has evolved throughout your lifetime, and uh, obviously when you look at, at the United States, and I lived there nine years, and you always hear about the American dream and how everything is possible, do you think that the American dream has it all 
uh, uh, changed, uh, uh, shifted during your lifetime? And how much harder is it to make it come true now than it was maybe 20, maybe 40, maybe 60 years ago? Well, the question is for whom? If you were an African-American 60 years ago, the passage of the civil rights laws, the ability of individuals to transact in society was enormously expanded. People are saying that you know, the black status is like going back to slavery. That's complete nonsense. If you look at the rapid change in African-American status in the last 60 years, it's tremendous, positive, and there's no denying it. I think the rest is just politics. People are saying it's not there. If you ask about being a, a factory worker at an unskilled job where you're competing with Chinese labor hmm. and a robot, then no, things are worse. There's no yeah. question about it. So it really depends on the kind of skill and the kind of person. Uh, we look at immigrants who come to the United States and we see enormous gains, success stories. People coming from Nigeria, from Vietnam, uh, and Latin America, they open businesses, they succeed very well because in American society, there's a lot of opportunity to try and experiment and rise out of traditional caste systems. So I think it really depends on who the person is in the background. There's a lot of opportunity for people, no question about it. And I think even in terms of providing educational opportunity, it's very, very high. People don't mean what Pell Grants and so forth. Now, I'm not saying there aren't any problems, I'm sure. But somehow, just because uh, Trump was president or or mm -hmm. Biden is president or something, this creates a peculiar cast to the individuals, which I don't think, if you look at the fundamentals of the society, I think the society is completely, uh, it changed in its openness. Just look at gay marriage. Gays were hiding 60 years ago. Now it's open. And nobody really cares in the sense of a majority. And the fact that you get this, these incidents, these salient incidents that get expanded by the press and by coverage does not really eliminate the fact that most Americans are very receptive. The gay marriage proposition was supported by the vast majority of Americans. And it's just the sense that we really don't want us control a lot. So there's been a big change in the opportunities to, for self-expression in the United States. Some people would say it's gone too far, but that's a different point. So I think there really is an opportunity. Up, but if you're talking about the upward mobility of a factory worker mm -hmm. in Toledo, Ohio, whose main job was to assemble cars for Ford Motor, then those jobs have dried up and they will continue to dry, <laughs> continue to dry up. Uh, uh, as robotization wanted, competition comes up. Yeah, of course. I wanted to get your take on the on the interaction between legal systems and human capital. Um, yes. Because I know you've also studied that profoundly and written about it uh, uh, yes. often as well. Is, is the flexibilization of, of the labor market, in your view, the right recipe? Or will it bring more precariousness and, and injustice? Well, I think got to be really careful. Something like the minimum wage and a lot of the regulations that are well-intended are not fully understood in their consequences. Take the minimum wage. There's a paper, a uh, set of papers written by David Card and others, uh, Dubay and so forth, claiming uh, correctly, by the way, 
that when you raise the minimum wage, the covered workers get higher wages. That's almost automatic. So what's, what's missing in that analysis is something deeper, which is what is the adjustment? So literally, if I lean on you or I tax you in some way, if I put pressure on you in various ways, where does the pressure go? So when we pressure the firm by saying imposing minimum wages, the standard response of many people is, oh, you're going to lay off workers because the price of labor has gone up. And that happens. It happens more often than certain groups of people would admit. But that's not the only adjustment and maybe not even the largest adjustment. Recently, it's been studied both in the U.S. and in Hungary that when you do this kind of change in the minimum wage, these areas of uh, these firms in particular, usually service sector firms or firms that are doing things like retail, McDonald's, for example, or other companies that, that hire such uh, persons, um, have to adjust somehow. And so one way they adjust in the fast food industry is by raising the price of the product. So if the firm is paying more money, it gets more money for its product, then it can compensate itself for that loss. And then if the firm is losing money down the road, it's much less likely to invest hmm. in that company and that line of activity to build firms and so forth. And neither one of those adjustments is very well studied. The first known about raising the price has been studied. And in fact, there's a very important paper by a professor at Stanford who actually showed that yes, you can increase the minimum wage. Yes, you can get people who are actually very, very, uh, very, very uh, much better off if they keep their job, but as a group, because fast food is consumed on average more by poor people than by middle-class or wealthy people, that because the price has gone up, the welfare of the poor has actually gone down. They're paying more for this product of fast food. And so it's, it's just the inability of people to see the economic system in the way that it adjusts. That's very troubling. And uh, you know, like, take rent control. This is one of the most studied problems in America, in at least in American economics. Back in the 30s and 40s, New York City imposed rent control. San Francisco is very actively doing so. And so what happens? I'm a rent, I'm a landlord. I bring in structure of, uh, uh, I bring out a restriction. I can't charge more. I put all kinds of restrictions about getting rid of unruly renters or clients in various ways. And so, what happens then is that people pull out of that industry. There's less investment in building new apartments and people who manage apartments are more than willing to let them sit vacant. So there's a new study out recently in San Francisco pointing out there was something like 60,000. San Francisco is a city that's plagued by uh, all kinds of problems uh, in terms of housing and a lot of homelessness going on. The weather's not so bad so people can live outside in a more comfortable way than they could in Chicago. But nonetheless, this whole issue has actually come and it's actually creating a, uh, a huge uh, problem in the sense that landlords and builders are pulling out of that market. Just like in the fast food market, they won't go in if they have to pay much higher wages. And so it's those long run adjustments that people are very, very, it's very hard for many people to understand. 
And the populist will only look immediately and say, yep, I raised the wage, I'm making them better mm -hmm. off. But then you ask, well, have I made a whole group of these people better off? And in the long run, are they better off? And those questions are almost never asked. And when they are, you see a really a highly qualified answer in the sense that the, the initial enthusiasm when put against this initial, this data and understanding the, the consequences of the action tempers the enthusiasm to put it mildly so the whole discussion i'm i mean i i so you're asking the question generally about uh, incentives and so i think what's happened is that it harder and harder it seems for many people certainly in american society but i know it's true in spanish society i study a lot the work in latin america i did a fair mm -hmm. amount of work mm -hmm. on latin america and looked at the job employment protection programs in Spain that were introduced some 30 years ago. And what's happened successfully uh, is that, yes, people who get protected, the insiders gain, but the outsiders are excluded. And it creates a two-sector world, which I think is very harmful for social mobility and inequality and for politics, for that matter. So I think the structure of uh, regulation is such that well-intentioned regulations sometimes can cause harm and it's not understood and advocates don't seem to want to think through the issue that deeply because it's so transparent it's just whatever salience is you know a policeman kills a black man and suddenly this becomes a prototype for all of society when in fact it's it's basically one hundredth of one percent of the police black interactions and so this is a typical, this is a problem. And I guess it's magnified now by the social media, which can blow mm -hmm. these things up, mm -hmm. large circles of, uh, of, uh, of, of ignorance. And I, I think, I think the, the danger is not really looking at the whole body of evidence. So uh, James, in order to wrap up our conversation, uh, I have a, sure. a, a few quick fire questions for you. So okay. in one word. Try to be quick, yes. Yeah, so in one word or in a short sentence, I'd like you to answer these, knowing that obviously uh, they could take a lot longer uh, to explore. But the first one is, in your opinion, sure. what is one personality trait that a good leader could really benefit from having? A political leader. Yes. I think that would be openness to experience. Okay. What the is the biggest... To no, tell the ability me, to me. learn from people, to learn from situations. What is the biggest challenge humanity faces today, in your view? The biggest challenge that humanity as a group faces is the great difficulty of being factually informed hmm. about social and economic policy and the unwillingness for people to be informed. I, I think that would actually be a topic for a show in itself. Uh, I, I think that's, that's crucial. Um, if it's you could crucial. change, it's yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it's incredible. If you could change one thing in the world today by magic, what would it be? What I would, well, I'm gonna follow up on my previous theme. But if I were to change one thing, I think I would ask people to at least weigh and measure more carefully what they hear and see. Hmm. 
before they reach judgments and conclusions. That would be across the whole society, the very poorest and the very wealthy. Final question, what's been the most important learning of your career? If you take one thing from your career, what is that one thing that you, you, you would focus on that people need to know? Oh, that people need to know or that I have benefited from. These are different. That you have benefited from, so therefore you want to share that, that one learning. <laughs> well, I would say there has never been anything that I have learned that did not have long-term value for me and guide me, not necessarily immediately, but down the road. So learning new things, learning is powerful and it creates the openness to, it creates the openness to a whole world of ideas and possibilities. And that is particularly significant, I think, considering your vast experience and the years that you have exercised your, your profession, that you remain open to learning as you did maybe when you were at the start of your career. So that, that I probably think more a, so, probably more okay. so because I'm more aware of how ignorant I am. <laughs> no, no, James. I just, you, you get to the boundaries of things and you realize, yeah. holy moly, I need to know more. But that's true in every field, physics, you know, look at all the dark matter physics going on right now. We know about what, 5% of the universe. So yeah. economics is not alone. James, it's been an absolute pleasure and privilege to have an opportunity to uh, 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 have this conversation with you, this discussion. Thank you so much for sharing your insight, your expertise, and, and uh, continued success in your, in your career and in your uh, constant learning, I would say. Okay, well, best of luck and uh, enjoy talking with you. So I hope, it's, I hope this is successful for you. It's Not That Simple is a podcast from Fundação Francisco Manuel dos Santos. Tune in every month at ffms.pt or subscribe on the usual platforms. <laughs>